This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, March 29, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. It is joked that voters don't really know what they want, that they'd like the government to stay out of their Medicare. Holster Scott Rasmussen says the people are way ahead of the politicians in terms of knowing what needs to be done, and in many cases, how to go about it. His new book is The People's Money. We spoke yesterday. When you talk about the wisdom of the public, um, they have a generally good set of instincts provided they're given credible information. One of the problems we have is we have a political leadership that does not want to listen to the people and does not want to give voters credible information. And that is the source of the problem. In fact, if you go back The reason we have a fiscal crisis today is because the political class has not only ignored the wisdom of the voters, they have tried to cover up the spending growth. In 1974, they passed um, legislation that changed the way we define balanced budgets and spending growth and all of these things. And so while it's easy to pick pick apart individual things, um, a great example on the healthcare field is with the polling over the president's healthcare law. Uh, some people will say, oh, the voters are stupid because they like this individual part. They like this individual part. Why don't they like the whole thing? Well, because they don't like the cost. And ultimately, that is an important thing. 81% of voters believe that this program will cost more than projected, and that scares them. So for them to know the rest of the details is not terribly important. What are some areas on the fiscal side where voters, in your opinion, have just a, a, a particularly clear picture of what's going on, and what ought to be done. Well, Social Security is one area. And and look, there's three big areas of the federal budget, national security, Social Security, and Medicare. If you don't talk about those three areas, you can't talk about changing the budget. In Social Security, voters want the government to deliver what it promised 70 years ago. They want money that is set aside from from their payroll taxes into a real trust fund that is used eventually to pay them back. They would like to see a simple trade-off, where if you want to retire later, you pay less in taxes now. You want to retire earlier, you pay more in taxes now. You make the decision at the home level rather than in the halls of Congress. You can structure that to eliminate the entire $19 trillion unfunded liability in Social Security. And on top of that, uh, you can uh, use it to give people more control of their own expenses. And what they do is people will be drawing less on Social Security you know, as future generations retire. Uh, another area, this is maybe an area where people don't have a clear idea of the details, but they have a great idea of, of where they'd like to see the country go. National security, foreign policy is an area where voters are notoriously ill-informed. Uh, but when you look at their core attitudes, uh, they're very consistent with the views of Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan. They would like far less interventionism abroad. They would like the U.S. to spend less of its resources protecting other nations. Uh, by a two-to-one margin, they think it's time to bring home troops from Western Europe and Japan. Uh, they're not thinking of that as, gee, what does it do to the federal budget? But they are thinking, you mean after 60 years, France can't figure out a way to defend itself. Why should we be footing that bill? Politicians like to, uh, you know, hammer on on issues like that. But from the farm bill to having troops in uh, in uh, other countries who that are our friends, uh, it's remarkably stable that uh, these things go on. How how 
are the people uh, through the ballot box or uh, other means to to get around that. The good news is in America, the people are always ahead of the politicians. Uh, you know, the revolution didn't begin in 1775 in Lexington. Voter attitudes had changed in the colonies for decades before that. Then you had the catalyst event. And then you had a politician, Thomas Jefferson, articulate the public mood in the Declaration of Independence. We see this theme again and again. In 1955, Rosa Parks didn't start the civil rights movement. She, though, was a catalyst. Attitudes had been growing and changing. She became a catalyst, or her refusal to give up a seat in the bus became a catalyst moment. And then Martin Luther King articulated the public view, and public opinion changed way before Congress acted. And in this particular case, we know that it was public opinion changing because Rosa Parks had done the same thing 12 years earlier and nothing happened. Public opinion wasn't ready. We're at another one of those points. Public opinion has shifted. The politicians are a couple of decades behind, and it's partly because government spending has gone up every single year since 1954. It's partly uh, because of the bailouts pushing people over the edge, maybe one of the early catalysts in this. I don't know you know, precisely the dynamics of on this date something's going to happen to initiate the change, but I do draw confidence from the fact that throughout American history, Public opinion is always a few decades ahead of the politicians, and right now public opinion is ready to address these issues. All the founders, uh, James Madison especially, were very concerned about uh, their ability to constrain government over the long haul on these uh, fiscal issues. Uh, That seems a fairly intractable uh, problem. The autopilot is is a a pretty big problem for, for fiscal issues. Are voters on one side or another, or do they have particular views about creating some sort of uh, constitutional limit on uh, government's ability to engage in uh, fiscal mischief? There's a couple of questions in there. First of all, it's not clear that constitutional limits can succeed because uh, what you have, and and this is true throughout history, political leaders like to bring more power to themselves. Uh, and, and, And this is not even an indictment of the people in Washington. Anybody in America who went to Congress and stayed there 20 years would have some of those same tendencies. It's the way the game is played. Um, so there is some support for things like a balanced budget amendment or uh, putting restraints on growth, uh, say, no faster than population growth plus uh, um, uh, inflation. But you really can't solve the problem by autopilot. Uh, you have to address the major issues. and. People would rather have a thoughtful discussion about big issues than saying, let's slash everything by 5%. A budget freeze. This was a, a term President Obama used, but it's been, it's been used Pe- before. But- right. People understand that those things are gimmicks. Um, when President Obama called for a freeze on discretionary income, yeah, people thought it was good. More people thought it would be better if he cut discretionary spending by a little bit. But hardly anybody – thought it would make much of a difference. Because they, while they don't know all the details, they know that when a president says, and by the way, Republican or Democratic president, I'm going to freeze discretionary spending rather than freeze the entire budget, there's some gamesmanship involved. Um, and that's why those particular proposals don't do well. And by the way, some of it just sounds crazy. Uh, the president did say he was going to freeze the federal payroll and it was going to save this much money. Well, to normal Americans, a freeze isn't saving any money or spending any extra money. It's a freeze. It only was spending or saving money if you use the Washington definition of you assume automatic growth. And that's true of Republicans and Democrats from the the Boehner claims about uh, making 
uh, certain cuts to the federal budget. It's all based on on baselines. Um, how do how do we get away from that? How do we get away from the the, this, this baseline thinking. The first thing you have to recognize is that part of the reason we're in a fiscal crisis today is because Republicans who said they were advocating fiscal responsibility for the last 40 years didn't challenge this baseline budgeting mindset. They played along. They, they took part in the cover-up along with Democrats who didn't want to acknowledge spending growth. Uh, if – just do a thought experiment. If you had gone back to 1974 and instead of having current services budgeting – Every year, the budget reports had come out in real dollars. Well, the president's budget says spending will go up by $190 billion next year. And the president will be forced to say, well, but that doesn't even cover inflation. And I got to make these cuts. To, But you have a whole different discussion when every budget debate begins with, wow, spending is going up really fast and we have to slow it down. The president this year, because nobody has done that for the last 40 years, comes out with a budget and he says – I'm, you know, this is an austerity budget. We're cutting everything we can. In fact, federal spending five years out will be $928 billion higher than it is today. Uh, that word games that they're playing from, from Washington is hiding the reality. If you shine the light on it, that will change the debate. Voters are typically assumed to be uh – to balance the interests of themselves, that is to say, lots of people, a majority of Americans now get some sort of government goodie, be it a loan forgiveness or a social security check or something. Uh, they're typically assumed to balance that with their interests in having low taxes and low federal spending. Yeah, usually uh, people in Washington say, you know, those voters, boy, they, they want to cut everything except their own benefits, you know, but they want to keep all their perks. Uh, a couple of years ago, President Obama offered to send seniors a $250 check because they didn't get a cost of living adjustment uh, due to inflation that year. A majority of seniors were opposed to that. They didn't want to get the extra goodies. It didn't seem fair to them. Homeowners who are behind on their mortgage do not want a, a majority of them do not want a federal bailout to help them pay their mortgage. Uh, people are not looking to get their own, um, you know, they're not looking for their own pinata, their own goodies to get out of this. Uh, the only way that that argument holds up is sometimes voters say, hey, wait a minute, you can't cut just my benefit. You can't cut just defense. You can't cut just this education program. I want to make sure that everybody else is sharing in this. So there's an attitude that we should all be in this together, but certainly not an attitude that some voters want to just protect all their own goodies and cut everybody else's. That idea of shared sacrifice, as laid out by uh, many prominent Democrats, typically means tax increases. Yeah. Voters would say uh, if there were real spending cuts – and there was still a little bit of a deficit left, we'd happily pay the extra taxes to make up the difference. However, they don't believe that spending cuts are coming. They don't believe any of the promises that have been made. And they do believe it is possible to get rid of the deficit without raising taxes. So uh, it's a tough, tough sell. At the end of the day, that shared sacrifice could work. Um, and could lead to a slight tax increase, but only if the government established a whole lot more credibility than they have right now, and only if tens of trillions of dollars of spending cuts actually had occurred. Scott Rasmussen is a pollster and author of the new book, The People's Money. We spoke following a forum for the book, which you can watch at Cato.org.